fuck the airlines, man. Yeah, fuck the airlines. Corporations are malingerers. Workers deserve their compensation when they get sick, and anyone who disagrees can, like, eat shit off a plate. Years of airlines, even like this last year, there's a thing coming out like there are some airlines that are considering whether or not they can just have their clients like stand up during the entire flight. They make specialized seats. You can just stand there. And it's like so they can just pack you in tighter and get more people on the airplanes. Mm-hmm. And now it's like and you know, charging you for an extra bag, charging you for, for everything, everything they overcharge on literally fucking everything. I mean, it's a constant joke about airlines. Yeah. And now they're just like, but we're going to run out of money. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like, oh, fuck you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry. Do you not have planes anymore? Can you not, you know, get some government grants fly, to do like. can't fly planes. They can't fly planes anymore. No, they can't. They, that's their thing. Their, their entire infrastructure has been destroyed by this virus that affects literally nothing of theirs except for their employees being able to show up to work and people traveling. I mean, the people traveling is a big deal. I mean, well, that, that's yeah. no joke. But that's uh, also, you know, classic not in supply and demand. Yeah. Like, there, there is um, no demand. You're the one who invested in the know, supply. It's your it's, own fucking fault. It's just economics 101. <laughs> yeah. 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 Supply and demand. And you can't change supply and demand. You can't. It's impossible. It's so, the only like, system we've ever tried the, in the entirety of human existence. And it's the it's only thing that works. A fundamental law of economic systems, which are real. They are real. And They're 100% real and not just things people made up from their uh, armchairs. No. No. And and you certainly can't, like, there's nothing you can do to, like, increase demand. No, of course not. Or, you know, change current existing systems so that maybe there's, like, you know, some other service that airlines could provide or, you know. I don't know. Or, or make it so that there might be shortages of something that might... I, I don't know, like increase the price, even though demand hasn't changged. I, I that, that just I don't sounds know. like nonsense to me. I don't understand. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I should have taken Econ One Hundred and Two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never took a single oh. economics class. I took like uh, statistics, no. and that was it. You know? I took well, statistics is way more useful than, ec- than economics uh, yeah, class. You know, fucking time. <laughs> Yeah, well, I certainly use the statistical thinking all the time. Um, there's, there's this thing, and I can't remember exactly how it shows up in um, uh, like economics or stats, but it's I want to call it, it's called like Bornhold's Law or Bordelli's Law or something like that. And it's yeah. that you take a complex series of numbers, like go through a newspaper and write down the date, like every single date that shows up in the newspaper. Then you take all the numbers, yeah. Um, uh, look at like the last number in each date and they always like any random set of numbers always falls along the same like uh, spectrum of like the lowest rep- the lowest amount that appears are ones the highest amount that appears are nines and it's a logarithmic uh, transition between the two mm-hmm. and apparently it's what the IRS uses to detect tax fraud because humans are really bad at just doing that instinctively because we're like yeah each number should be represented like the same amount right but that's just not how it actually works. Hmm. Maybe backwards. Maybe there's more ones than nines. Basically, I, it's it's more likely to roll over to a one than to stay at a nine. 
Oh, okay. It's it's part of like the waiting for a bus, like not paradox, but like phenomenon where you're like, okay, well, you're going to wait for a bus. Well, you're probably going to end up waiting 15 minutes as opposed to nine minutes because ones and fives are more likely to show up than zeros and nines. And it's just one of those like random weird mathematical things that crops up hmm. everywhere. And I can't remember exactly why it happens. I, I, mean, I went to a lecture. It was like a mathematics stats lecture explaining this and um it went way over my head it was a thing for like well, pure, this pure is math going majors. over my head well well there you go yeah i know it's not um, yeah. yeah me me with my little social science degree learning how to do research design and and make the numbers work yeah. um That's really all I, you need. I i think i mean it's a much better way to learn statistics if you're not a math major is to like actually learn them in the context of what you're going to use and apply them in. But yeah. yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that, that's sort of, uh, you know, that actually is a pretty good segue. Well, cause I think, well, okay, go, okay, go on. Uh, we gotta get to this our done top- quickly. Cause pretty soon I'm going to have a random person come by my house to trade ammo for musical instruments because we live in the apocalypse now. So. I mean, I figured that, all right, I'm not taking that bait yet. Um, <laughs> okay, go on, go on. Sorry. But the magic, the magic of statistics and economics, and maybe even economic planning, is a really great segue into our topic today. Yes, uh, which is uh, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics <gasps> or communism. Well, go on. Not exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, I. Uh, you know, this is the Long Road Podcast. I'm Sasha. Trevor. And we think this is maybe not a an important topic for this exact moment, but it's also good to sometimes distract ourselves from the pandemic reality. And we'll uh, still talk about it. <laughs> we'll still, I mean, we'll still talk about it for sure. Uh, but I, I think that I, growing up in America... Um, as you and I have done, um, and you know, countless millions who, who can be counted. Um, we, our, our first experience, uh, learning about the concept of socialism, you know, barely even the concept, um, was through, th- through depictions of the Soviet Union. Yeah, gulags, big gray buildings, Stalin's mustache. That, that's basically it. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some tanks thrown in there, uh, oh, some yeah. missiles, and you know, and some MIGs that just are never successful against F-16s, <laughs> um, because MIGs were terrible planes, and there's no good reason why the Russians kept making them. Um, I can't tell if that's sarcasm or not. Yeah, it's sarcasm. MIGs are okay. pretty great planes. I thought um, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah in, fa- in, fact, uh, in fact, the first operational MIG fighter jet was uh, so good it scared the shit out of the military-industrial complex and spurred on a lot of um, plane development in the U.S. in response because it was uh, far better for dogfighting uh, because it was very maneuverable and very fast. Um, and from what I understand, pretty easy to pilot as far as planes go. So for all those reasons, uh, it made it a very good plane. Um, 
for its time. I think I'm trying to remember the actual name of the book. It's it's sci-fi, but it's um, it's the book that the Six Million Dollar Man is based off of. I don't know uh, what the Six Million Dollar Man is. Just like you know, top top soldier gets uh, severely wounded near death, and um, they rebuild him for six million dollars into like some cybernetic super soldier. (laughs) But the whole plot of the book is him actually like breaking into. I believe it's like an Iranian, um, like airstrip to destroy a bunch of these migs that the russians gave them yeah yeah i so i forget the exact designation but it was the first like main mig that was used and it it has a very distinctive look it it has sort of a flat nose yeah uh, because that's where the air intake is um you know and then a very long uh i i don't think it's a communication antenna i think yeah, I'm not sure what it is, but it has a long antenna from the nose as well. So it's a pretty distinctive look. Uh, yeah. and, I, and I think when people see it, it just screams 50s fighter jet. Um, it kind of looks like an old like uh, BMW. Like It's got that kind of like slanted flat <laughs> front to it. So. Um, well, but so the nose was like a, it was like flat. It, was, it just looked flat, but then it was a very uh, slanted like... Um, cockpit area on top um so uh and, and those planes were deployed and uh with with soviet pilots uh which we didn't know about until decades later um in korea mm. uh and they were very effective at shooting down american pilots who were then captured by um by mostly the uh the pla the the uh the people's uh, yeah, it's the People's Liberation Army, the the Chinese Army. Okay. Um, yeah. So, but so that's a, actually kind of a good demonstration, I think, of of something that that illustrates the dichotomy uh, of American interpretations of the Soviet Union. Is that on the one hand, it was this gray, depressing, uh, poor. Uh, you know, imprisoned population. Basically. Yeah, you can always get the sense of this kind um, of very authoritarian, um, right? Uh, very um, austere, very heavy austerity. You know, the people in line to get their beat rations, and that at the same time, well, and and, and certainly, I, I would say that later on, uh, there's also this view that oh, well, the Soviet Union was not as technologically advanced. Which, uh, as you get into the 80s and 90s, and, and like. So dissolved in 1991. Mm. As you get into that, yeah, they were kind of behind, especially on computer science. Um, But uh, for most of the Soviet Union's history, it was um, either far ahead of the United States when it came to technological development or uh, basically keeping up. So uh, that that kind of changed uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, which also coincided with some pretty significant uh, political and economic changes that also went on in the Soviet Union and across the world. Yeah, so, I mean, especially like you know we have um, uh, oh, what's his name uh, had the large wine spot on his face. Um, Gorbachev. Gorbachev. Yeah. Yeah. Glasnost and all that. Yeah, Glasnost and uh, Perestroika. Um, so, so those were largely in responses to what had become 
some very real political, social, and economic stagnation that had happened, um, largely, you know, through the seventies. Uh, and that also happened in the U S that happened everywhere. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, they, they, they got a name in the Soviet Union, Glasnost and, and Perestroika. One of them was the restructuring of the economy to allow for more, uh, private ownership and, uh, private enterprise, um, and then the other one was a political reorganizing that increased uh, free speech. Um, and there's some interesting history around that, too, because actually the speech got to be um, like very free. <laughs> some <laughs> might say too free. Um, <laughs> what, one might hesitate. One might might say that, but it really depends. Uh, because I do want to get um, into this, but I, I think yeah. it would really be helpful I mean, even just for me, because I, I don't have a great understanding of, like, the start of the Soviet Union. Um, I mean, the October Revolution, all that stuff. I, yeah. I, I, have, I have these very wide views of it, but I, I know mm-hmm. that it's like you, you have much more um, well, depth of understanding of. And I want so, to just a, a broad background, because, I mean, I never learned this shit in school. I just right, learned the Soviet right. Union was there, and they're bad. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and I it think just so, suddenly happened. Yeah. Nobody could have predicted it. Um, it's weird how often those unpredictable things happen. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, my my knowledge is also pretty limited. Uh, it's not something that I have had extensive study in, like I've had with, say, modern German history. So I can give kind of the basic rundown, and and the and I won't get too bogged down into it. But to really kind of understand. Uh, why the Soviet Union was established, how it was established, you have to look back, of course, to you know history before it. And uh, the one that, yeah. So the one I want to look back at for <laughs> rippling frame is what, what's kind of generally called, um, yeah. <laughs> we need a time machine mm. sound. Every every podcast needs a time machine sound. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, so, have, we'll have our editor put it in in post. <laughs> um, in December of 1825, um, there was uh, a revolt that was called the Decemberist Revolt. There is a bit of a pattern in Russian history. They named the revolutions after months. Um, is this because they actually do happen during those months or they're resolved in those months or... Um, it's usually because something important happened in those months. Okay. So, um, the other thing you have to remember because pe- people think it's weird, but like all calendars are weird. Um, so at this time, uh, the Russians were not using, uh, the current, um, calendar used by most of the globe, which is the Gregorian calendar. Uh, they were using a slightly different calendar, so their months were set off. It was a set off of about 14 days difference. Okay. Um, and, and it comes down to various interpretations of, oh, when the lunar cycle is at whatever point, then that's what you decide is going to be the start of the month or something. It's okay. not something I know about, but uh, it's also associated with the fact that the Russians... Uh, that the, the primary religion of the Russian Empire at that time was also the uh, Orthodox 
um, yeah. the Orthodox Church. So the Orthodox Church overall also used this this calendar um, that the uh, Soviet Union got rid of and adopted the kind of modern one with some like fun, weird things with like weird workers' calendars and stuff. Okay. All very interesting. But they had a December revolt. Um, and this was a, uh, a liberal revolt uh, that happened in 1825. Uh, when Russian army officers uh, led soldiers, and you'll find that throughout Russian history, um, th- a lot of Russian sh- soldiers end up like revolting. Uh, so soldiers make up a very large part of the pattern of, of revolt in in Russian history. Um, so these army officers had essentially been brought up in a liberalizing Russia uh, yeah. that was in the early 19th century. Um, this was also kind. This was after the time of, uh, I think, it was Emperor Peter, um, who sort of established the city of Saint Petersburg, okay. um, which became, you know, which was the capital of Russia. It was sort of what, uh, yeah, it was Peter the Great, Tsar, uh, Tsar Peter the Great, who established the city, and it was supposed to sort of be a demonstration that, yeah, we can be European too. Okay, um, we're you know we're a European superpower. So is this kind of um, yeah. coming away from the idea of you know, uh, I mean it, it's not like a, a this is still feudal society across Russia and Europe at the time. This is like you know, uh, what, what's, yeah. the, what's the time frame? When is this actually taking so, place? What year? So we're talking eighteen twenty-five. So okay. Peter the Great was uh, sort of. 1700 about um yeah in the in that sort of area uh and then and then the empire was established in 1713 okay so um and and the russian empire is actually very similar to to the united states uh the u.s had western expansion um and russia had eastern expansion um so uh you know that that was kind of what was going on. Uh, Russia was conquering numerous peoples uh, all through, uh, you know, what is today uh, Central and Eastern Russia, and into uh, what is also today um, China. Um, okay. And that and that leads to another another revolt at another point. So you have the Decemberist revolt, which is ultimately put down uh, okay. by uh, by the Russian state. Um, so. Basically, the reason it happened is that there were liberal reforms going on. The army officers were uh, sort of brought up and supported those liberal reforms. uh, And then the czar changed. Um, And that czar uh, tried to make a return to more conservative uh, values. And this is kind of a a pattern that goes on in the Russian Empire until it ends, uh, is different czars having, you know, drastically drastically different ways of managing things um and so this push pull is going on uh for you know, a couple hundred years so uh this particular um this particular uh revolution or or insurrection is notable because uh it was later on celebrated by the Soviet Union as a as an important step in their building uh, their own revolution. Okay, uh, and these um, 
these revolution these revolutionaries these army officers were also very inspired by the united states um so uh, or, or at least they, they, there's significant reason to believe that they were influenced by it. Uh, and this revolt ultimately led to the establishment of a constitution that puts some limitations on the czar's power. Uh, and that constitution was largely inspired um, by the U.S. Constitution. Okay. I know that, um, I don't remember if it was 1850s or 1860s, the Alaska Purchase, where the U.S. bought Alaska from Russia. I know that was in part to fund Russian military. That was one of, reasons, one of the reasons why Russians were okay selling Russian America, which was Alaska. Yeah. Which is now Alaska. Um, it was that to kind of help fund these revolutionary movements or counter-revolutionary movements? Was it a czarist thing or was it a populist thing? Um, I, I don't know the specific details of it, but uh, it almost certainly went to funding uh, the czar. Okay. And whatever the czar wanted, um, because it was a deal with the with the Russian state. Um. Yeah, I, I don't know any more about that though. Okay. Um. So I don't want to dwell too much on this particular um revolt. Uh, one interesting that happened, interesting thing that happened because of it though is uh. They uh, the the failed uh, insurrectionists were. Uh, some of them were, um, I mean, they, they were, they were all, uh, convicted, um, some were hanged, but most of them, uh, were transported to Siberia. Ooh, that sounds Um, like a, uh, reoccurring theme that we're going to talk about. Oh yeah. (laughs) It is definitely a reoccurring theme. Uh, so in short, what happened is they served their time uh, and essentially stayed uh, out in Siberia and uh, were part of the European-Russian settlement of, uh, of Siberia. And um, they also launched uh, a sort of like intellectual uh, renaissance in Siberia because they, you know, these were... Uh, to be an army officer in the Russian Empire at the time uh, usually meant that you were uh, you were part of the nobility uh, because they had a very very large nobility in Russia. Okay. Um, and so, if you were in the nobility, you tended to work in the bureaucracy or the military. Um, and so, these were people who were also quite well educated by the standards of the time. And so, they went on to establish, like, uh, I think they established a university um, in Siberia. Uh, I'm trying to, I forget the exact place they did it. Um, but well, it should be said they, too, like Siberia yeah. is not like a small area. Like Siberia no. is the size of the U S and K the size of North America. It is a massive region that is, well, gets very polar and also has a lot of like kind of temperate, like forest, I mean, like Canada does. Yes. And no, I, I think people sort of just interpret all of Russia east of the Urals to be, uh, Siberia. Yeah. Um, when actually there's a whole section of it uh, just east of the Urals, which is not, and then you have Siberia, uh, and then east of that you get into Kamchatka, um, and I think, yeah, Kamchatka, and then you can sort of go uh, south down to uh, Vladivostok, uh, ah, which is on the I've border. Heard some terrible things about Vladivostok. Um, I've never been. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't heard terrible things about Vladivostok. I just met a couple um, Russians who are like, yeah, go there if you want to get killed. Like, 
Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, there's um, like, it's, it's just like I do, a, I do have a I have a coworker from Vladivostok, but I have uh, to ask about that. I heard that maybe, um, but Vladivostok also means uh, it, it is uh, translated. It means victory in the east, um, which I, I mean, as a conqueror, I guess that's kind of a sensible name. Yeah. Uh, so that's the very bare details of what, you know, what went on with that. Uh, but that, that revolt sort of went on to inspire a lot of political, uh, political maneuvering and ideas that, uh, that happened after it. Um, and so we're going to jump a long time, (laughs) uh, to another Russian revolution. Uh, this one's called the, uh, uh, the 1905 Russian Revolution, and this is probably named the, after a month. Well, <laughs> no, but it did it did lead to a constitutional reform called the October Manifesto. Okay, all right, so we're keeping along. All right, <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to hold the, these squirrely Russians to their ideology. That's all I'm trying to do. So, oh, right. there is no Russian ideology. These moosey um, and squirrely Russians, except national Bolshevism, I guess, but. Um, but that's, yeah, we don't need to talk about national Bolshevism today. Uh, <laughs> okay, 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 go on, go on, go on. <laughs> yeah. So the Russian revolution of 1905, um, happened because for, for a lot of reason, but it was worker strikes, it was peasants, uh, revolting and military mutinies. So these three things, strikes, peasant, uh, you know, peasant insurrection and military mutinies are like the holy trinity of <laughs> of Russian discontent. Okay. Um, so, uh, this largely started as a result of uh, of the government's response to getting rid of feudalism. So, feudalism had largely been ended as a legal uh, plan. So. Um, that, that happened in 1861, uh, when the government, uh, created, they called it the emancipation reform and what they tried to do to manage that because they didn't want to suddenly have a, they wanted to avoid proletary, wow, proletary, proletarianism, Wow, I cannot talk today. Uh, Proletarianization. There we go. Wow. Proletarianization. Proletarianization. Uh, And when they mean proletarianization, what they meant is that when you kick all the peasants off their land, they go to the cities and they become part of the the working, you know, the industrial working class who this government was already having a lot of trouble with. Um, Yeah. So they wanted to keep the peasants on the land, and the way they did that is through a really screwy property legal system, what do you know, that was meant to keep the peasants on the land, uh, even though they were not, um, even though though they were no longer legally bound to a feudal lord. So uh, they... They did this not through private ownership, but through common ownership with private interests that were broken between the different peasants. And because it was common land that they simply had a private interest in, they were required to pay uh, a fee for that. Um, 
but they also were not allowed so to renounce still, their still private being interest. They're taxed on the land. They're basically being forced to own the land and being taxed on it, but under a non-feudal system. But under a non-feudal system, and now let's add in a level of you know limitation that will make people's lives miserable. Um, the amount of land that they had a private interest to that they were allowed to grow on was nearly never enough to actually support them. Okay. Yeah. So... Um, what this led was to a bunch of really hungry people um, who could not grow enough food on their own and who would offer their labor um, to other peasants uh, who were a little bit better off. Um, and so they would wander around the countryside trying to trying to get work so that they could pay these fees on the land that they owned and had an interest in but wasn't enough to support them. Okay. Uh, this is, this is sort of a precursor to what's going to happen in the, the famine in Ukraine, um, much later, uh, okay. with, uh, people generally call it the Holodomor, but, uh, this was, this is what allowed the, the, this is what allowed kulaks or essentially peasants who were doing a little bit better than the other peasants, uh, because they hired other peasants. Um, okay. that's what allowed them to, to establish themselves. Okay. So, um, obviously none of this was working. Uh, some of the best, most fertile areas in the entire empire were in some of the worst decline. Um, you know, sort of the Ukraine, Eastern, yeah, Ukraine, sort of Western Russia area. There is some of the best soil on the planet. Um, and they weren't really able to produce enough. Um, okay. So all that's going on. There's not enough food. People are dying. Uh, the population is booming. Um, and then you also have the problems of empire, which are that you have tons of different nationalities, uh, who don't particularly like being governed by the Russians, uh, and they want their own independence. Um, and then you also have large numbers of strike actions by radicalized and radicalizing workers going on in the cities, particularly St. Petersburg and Moscow. Okay, and these strikes were just generally um, like labor-based strikes. They weren't. Like, oh yeah, this was like industrial. Okay, yeah. they weren't specifically like communist or socialist strikes. They were just labor-focused. I'm not um, sure what that that ideology starts. So creeping at, at this time, at this time in history uh, across the world, you couldn't separate uh, the labor movement from the socialist communist movement. They were very much all in the same boat, even though there were certainly disagreements. Okay. Um, the idea of non-socialist labor uh, is really a, a post-war uh, development. Um, so all that's going on, obviously shit's going to pop off. They're, like, yeah. It's going to happen. <laughs> okay. um, and so it did. Uh, numerous strike actions, uh, peasants rising up particularly against landowners because the nobility didn't just go away. Um, and military mutinies, uh, which went on because the military itself was, you know, there were a lot of conscripts. You lost a lot of your political rights when you joined the military. And that, that was a pretty consistent pattern across European militaries of the time. So all that's right. going on. Um, they launched this revolution. Uh, and uh, the result is essentially a constitutional monarchy okay uh, in 1905 um 
Now, this constitutional monarchy still allowed uh, the czar to maintain a huge amount of power. Um, so this was under the Russian constitution of 1906, uh, where, um, yeah, so this created the state Duma, which is still the, the parliament of, of Russia today. Okay. Uh, half of the members of the upper house were appointed by the czar, while the other half were elected by various governmental, clerical, and commercial interests. Um, huh. And members of the lower house were to be chosen by different classes of the Russian people through a complex scheme of indirect elections, um, with the system being weighted to ensure the ultimate preponderance of the propertied classes. Okay, that doesn't sound unfamiliar. Yeah. Um, so... And I'm getting this off of Wikipedia because they they summarize it better than I do. Um, while the Duma held the power of legislation and the right to question the Tsar's ministers, it did not have control over their appointment or dismissal, uh, which was reserved to the monarch alone, nor could it alter the constitution, save upon the emperor's initiative. The Tsar retained an absolute veto over legislation, as well as the right to dismiss the Duma at any time for any reason he found suitable. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so um, it doesn't really take power with the czar. It's the czar still is like, oh, I can still appoint people, and um, get rid of people, and you know. Yeah. So, so it's like, Your Majesty, we want to negotiate with you. So, um, can we please meet and tell you what we think? But otherwise, you can do what you want. Um. So, I mean, which which is a little simple because it did actually put some limitations on the czar's power. Because all of this was backed by the threat that if he didn't go along with it, the strikes and the riots and the and the mutinies would continue. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. So so it, it turns out that um, that uh, you know that shit works, and uh, and so like this this was a real uh, this was. Um, the czar was Nicholas at the time. I'm trying. I think it was Nicholas the first, but I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think it was Nicholas. No, it was Nicholas the second. Never mind. Oh, okay, so the same. Yeah, same guy who who's you know gonna get murdered by the Bolsheviks later. Um, yeah. He really hated these restrictions on his power. Fucking despised it, um, and wanted to get rid of it as soon as he could. So this goes on 1905 and then another 12 years later uh mm-hmm. there's another revolution. <laughs> uh and this one okay. is the February revolution. Um so <laughs> World War 1 has started sort of the 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 simple story is uh Austria wanted to reassert its authority over Serbia because a Serbian terrorist group murdered a prince that they didn't actually care about, a duke. Um, And that sort of started World War I. Uh, So Austria wants to attack Serbia. Russia comes in on the side of Serbia. France comes in on the side of Russia. Germany tries to do sneak attacks on both of them, uh, on on France first, planning to go and then fight Russia later. Starts World War I, and then everybody gets bogged down in terrible trench warfare for four years. Um, Probably the worst warfare we've seen on this planet. Yeah, arguably. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, and I mean, like, uh, from all accounts, everything I've heard of World War One is it is like literally like living hell on earth. It is some of the worst. um, Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, it, it was the perfect combination of industrial warfare without medicine and sanitation to keep up with it, ultimately, uh, and a number, you know, and a number of other factors there, too. But uh, so Russia is now involved in this war that it's not particularly prepared for because none of them are particularly prepared for it. Um, the Germans uh, didn't think that the Russians would prepare for it, you know, would be able to mobilize their troops as quickly as they could. So Germany got stuck with a two-fronted war that it was not expecting to have. Um, so that means that, you know, after the first year or so of the war, no, there's no clear uh, power that's able to really push and win. Um, except for essentially Britain at the very end when they use a big tank battle um, that that pushes through. Um, it's all a lot more complicated than that. Anyway, this is going on. And as a result, Russia, the Russian Empire has now moved into a war economy. And the difficulty okay. with war economies is that it leads to massive shortages of materials, particularly food. Um, and this is in a country that does not have its agricultural management in order, right? This is a consistent problem uh, also in Russian history is just very poor management of the agriculture. Uh, and this is, uh, I guess, related to the fact that they still have this um, not quite peasant system going on, or has that been um, kind of removed at this point? So that's still basically in place. Um, I don't know all of the changes that happened, but okay. there's definitely a very, very large peasant class. Um, when when you look at the history of like communist. A theory about a revolution. Everybody thought that the that the communist revolution would happen in Germany or Britain first, because these were kind of the industrialized areas and had exactly. this educated yeah. group who understood the complexities of what socialism really meant and were able um, to actually really yeah that that you could have a, a vanguard, but but really they all centered on the industrial working class and and Marx uh, argued that industrial capitalism was actually a necessary step in the historical transition to socialism. Which is uh, uh, one of the things that I do know is like one of the uh, Trotskyist divides is that Trotsky was like, no, revolution can start amongst the uh, peasant class as well. Yeah, Socialist well, revolution can start amongst the peasant class. I, I know a Chinese man who disagrees. <laughs> um, so... It, it, and this and this worker peasant divide is actually a, a major issue uh, in the Russian Revolution, um, particularly in the consolidation of power by the Bolsheviks. So uh, there are all these shortages going on, um, and it leads to uh, particularly women um, rioting uh, in more rural areas, but also the cities. Uh, because of the food shortages. So, you know, about 50% of the healthy men in Russia were in the military. Yeah. Which, which is an unfathomable number, you know, proportion. Um, and so many, many, many women were left uh, at home to be in charge. Uh, and so they were having to provide for everybody in the family and make sure that everybody got fed. So when all the food is getting sent to the front, uh you know, and, and you also are living yeah. in the country aren't getting yeah. the 
yeah. And and you yeah, and you and you have a bunch of men who otherwise are not going to be growing food, you you suddenly have a recipe for a food shortage. So uh there are a number of like businesses that price gouged, what do you know? Surprise. Uh, and so the women and so many women rioted and broke into these shops and and stole the food because they needed it. Uh this precipitated in uh I'm looking at my notes. Uh, I have, have have a lot of notes. Um, okay, so this precipitated in uh, mass protests um, that happened in February in uh, Petrograd, which is today Saint Petersburg. Um, it was renamed Petrograd, Petrograd uh, because before it was Saint Petersburg, but it sounded too German. Okay. So uh, this happened. Um, you had mass protests and riots that went on uh, with uh, clashes with the police and the gendarmes um, that eventually leads to people being shot in the crowd, uh, which is a, another consistent start to a lot of revolutions. Yeah. Um, so the people who mainly took part in this, uh, you know, were, were women who started who started it for the most part, and then uh, soldiers who hated the war, uh, joining the rioters. Um, and then this was, uh, this was then compounded by industrial strikes. So all this is going on, uh, and it leads to a new provisional government being formed, uh, which was the, the Russian provisional government. It's formed in March of 1917, uh, and it leads to the abdication of Nicholas II. Okay. Um, and so this government doesn't last long. It doesn't even last a year. Uh, so there is a lot. There was a lot of this is the Nicholas II that like kind of seizing more power for the czar, or for the 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 royal family. That's the government you're talking well, about. That doesn't last a year, or the no the the, the Russian the Russian provisional government is. Uh, what comes out of the February revolution of 1917. Yeah. And it forces Nicholas II to abdicate as the czar. So you now have a Russian empire that continues to exist with no czar. Okay. Um, And the person who comes out on top as the leader of this provisional government for most of the time is a guy named Alexander uh, Kedansky. Okay. Um, who was a member of the Socialist Revolutionary Party, which was kind of an agriculturalist. Uh, it was kind of like, it was kind of an agriculturalist democratic socialist, but we'll throw some revolution in there. It, it was kind of a big mix socialist revolutionary group. Um, yeah. And so this provisional government uh, basically has these agricultural, these agricultural socialists who tend to be the more moderate wing, uh, and it has some Bolsheviks in it. And then a number of other people who, you know, who's got, who have their own different ideologies and smaller parties, uh, at the same time as this is happening, uh, the Petrograd Soviet has established itself and the Petrograd Soviet, uh, is basically run by the Bolsheviks. Just say right now what Soviet translates to. Yeah. So, um, the, the Russian word Soviet uh, translates to committee. Um, so when so when you hear about uh, 
you know, peasants uh, protesting and saying all power to the Soviets. Uh, they're referring to all power to these uh, workers and soldiers committees. So these committees small were democratic groups that are actually like, yeah. you know, doing democratic yeah. things um, and having uh, input from the actual people as opposed to uh, more, I guess, appointed figures. Yeah. And at this point, these things are popping up everywhere all across the empire. Um, but the one that has the most power is the Petrograd Soviet, which is sort of angling to become the new provisional government. Um, little wonder that the Bolsheviks were, you know, pretty involved in that because they were organizing the industrial working class, uh, which was centered in Petrograd. So, uh, to, to get this very, very long story short, this government does not last long. Kerensky ends up, uh, so, so the Bolsheviks use the Petrograd Soviet to essentially start more strikes and an armed insurrection against uh, the uh, provisional government. Uh, Kerensky escapes uh, first to Paris and then to New York. Um, and then, uh, well, and, and the German government allows, uh, you know, allows Lenin uh, and a number of others to leave Switzerland and travel through Germany to Russia because they're totally fine with the Russian government falling apart. Yeah. Um, and so the Bolsheviks in the course of a very short amount of time in, in one day, basically uh, take over a lot of the central uh, communications networks in Petrograd. Um, and from there, uh, you know, they, they took Moscow in two weeks, um, and Kerensky makes a final stand, uh, which, you know, which he went and like told soldiers to drop their weapons. They refused. And then his forces fired on those soldiers, which that, that put an end to any influence he had. Nobody was going to follow him because they associated it, you know, shooting on crowds with what the czar did. Right. Um, which so again, I, I do know historically comes up time and time again in yeah. post uh, post Bolshevik Revolution Soviet Russia, where there are these, oh, yeah. these instances that keep happening again and again. I mean, there's no, I know some of the big issues after Stalin died, where there was at like near Stalin's funeral, there's this mass surge of people to go to the funeral, and soldiers told to keep them away, ended up firing into the crowd, and immediately yeah. was like, oh god, we're going to start another revolution. We have to stop this. And yeah, yeah power struggles, et cetera. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And you can see that in, in revolutions throughout the world today. Like the, the Russian revolution is so fascinating as, as like a case study of this in, in many ways, first industrial, like modern industrial revolution, Yeah, because it, it looks so similar to what goes on in Lebanon and Egypt and Tunisia and, you know, pick a place. Right. Um, so all this, you know, the Bolsheviks do this in October, uh, and that is what uh, becomes known as the October Revolution. Uh, very soon after that, they establish uh, the Soviet Union and then proceed to fight in fight the Russian Civil War, uh, because in all that time, a number of opposition groups had grown up. Uh, and this was mostly, in, you know, outside of Petrograd and Moscow. Uh most of the resistance against the Bolsheviks were these agriculturalist democratic socialists okay. um, who they were later referred to as the Mensheviks. Um, so yes. Bolshevik. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know so that Bolshevik, term. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, so in the Petrograd Soviet before they launched their uh, their insurrection, um, they were made up out of these two groups who were mostly equal in power: okay. uh, the um, the Leninists and and the agriculturalists and. Uh, and basically it was a political propaganda maneuver by the Bolsheviks. So, uh, Bolshevik just means essentially a person of the, ma- of majority, okay. um, from Bolshevstva. Uh, and then you also have Menshevstva, which means the minority. And so a okay. Menshevik is somebody who's in, in the minority. Um, so they call these people the Mensheviki and, uh, they, uh, were the, the agricultural socialists, but they weren't actually really in, in the minority. They were probably in the majority overall throughout the country. Okay. Um, but, you know, majorities don't really stand much of a chance when the other side is armed, and they're not. So, <laughs> uh, so the Bolsheviks proceed to fight this uh, civil war uh, that lasts, I think, into about 1921. I forget the exact date that it, that it ended. Um, 1923. There we go. Okay. Uh, and that's when they establish uh, the Soviet Union as as we uh, came to know it. Um, so most of the resistance was these agriculturalist socialists, but there were also pockets of you know right wing uh, resistance. Uh, foreign powers also sent troops. And invaded Russian territory to fight the Soviets. Um, the I mean, U.S. did I mean, this. This, this is around the twenties. Was there any sort of yeah. kind of like nascent fascist movement going on? Because there was that sort of like not quite fascist, but that similar sort of like strong authoritarian right leaning movements going on across Europe um, um, and in Eastern European states as well. And so I'm curious, there was anything like that in Russia at the time, or was that not really part of this uh, kind of turbulent dynamic that was going on between these different groups in Russia? Not. Not as such, no, because you. the difference there is that in like Weimar, Germany, the right wing was not defined by the the nobility and and the imperialists. You know, nobody was really calling to bring back the Kaiser because he was pretty garbage at what he was doing. Right. Um, Whereas... uh, in in Russia, you kind of had you still had the monarchists. Um, I would say that that was probably it, but you, you really didn't. <sighs> but yeah, like getting that populist support behind the noble class that a lot of, you saw in like Italy and stuff like that. Yeah, so you had the White Army, which was the primary opposition. Um, and it's sort of what led to, you had the Red Army and you had the White Army. And the Red Army was, of course, the army of the, of the communists, the Bolsheviks, uh, led by Trotsky, um, who was a, a, an incredibly good uh, strategist. Um, so the White Army was basically made up out of uh, those... Um, out of the nobility, former imperial military officers, anti-communists, uh, you know, ba- basically a lot of the old, um, yeah, I guess also like, re- like Republican, like Republicans, people who supported having a, a, like a liberal Republic okay. and then social Democrats who supported Kerensky. Okay. 
So, so it was this whole mishmash of things. Basically, um, just the people who did not like the Bolsheviks all kind of banded together just to kind of limit yeah. the Bolshevik power. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the pro, you know, it's the same problem with all big tent movements. There was a lot of stuff going wrong with that. Um, but they were supported. They did get outside support from like the U S government and the British government among others. Um, so, uh, the other thing that went on that, you know, I know a lot of my anarchist comrades like to talk about (laughs) is that there were, there was some anarchist resistance, uh, it was not widespread. Um, anarchism was not a widespread ideology in Russia. Um, it had it had a much greater uh, hold in um, in more industrialized countries at the time. So, uh, you know, it did exist. Um, the first anarchist resistance was established by so it was the Black Guards. Uh, that were established by uh, a woman named. Just want to find her name. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, so this is, yeah. I think, very good kind of historical background of like where this group <laughs> came from, which is, I think, what we want. Yeah. We want to give people an idea of like what the Soviet Union was, where it came from. Yeah. So, so uh, let, let's let's yeah let's talk about yeah. the the <laughs> uh, the red elephant in the room. Let's talk about Stalin. Okay. And not depth like deep dig into who he was as a person, no. but just kind of how Stalinism grew out of this uh, uh, like Leninist Bolshevism. Um, just to be kind of this general sense of like where yeah. this kind of what our modern conception of the USSR how that came into being. So, I mean, uh, Lenin was the leader of the Soviet Union. Uh, He wanted Trotsky to be the next leader. Um, But at that time, the the sort of executive leadership, uh, which was a committee for the most part uh, of the Soviet Union, had a lot of like political maneuvering. And so a man named Joseph Stalin uh, was... Uh, a very sexy bank robber. <laughs> yeah, I well, I don't know. I'm not that thirsty for him, but yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he was a ba- he was a bank robber. Um, he sort of had his original background in like illegalism a bit, but he eventually uh, became the general secretary of the Stalin Communist Party. Do crime, yeah. <laughs> oh god it's like god god um and he took over from lenin and he proceeded to uh restructure the soviet economy for massive industrialization um this is when the soviet union uh went through I, I don't e- I don't remember the numbers, but they electrified most of the country in in under ten years. Um, they increased, you know, they increased the building of schools. They uh, and they also centralized a lot of the Soviet state um, that was still uh, operating under uh, economic plans that were not nearly as centralized before. Uh, it also um, another major thing that 
uh, Stalin did before the Second World War is he made the decision uh, based on another, I forget the guy's name, recommendation that the Soviet military be uh, essentially prepared to be a technologically advanced fighting force that would be able to win its battles not through attrition, which was the traditional Russian way of fighting wars. Yeah. Um, which is that you let the person invade, you burn everything down and then they starve and they leave. Yeah. Um, classic that, <laughs> yeah. Um, and that instead, uh, the Soviet union would develop a military that would be able to, uh, win very quickly through essentially overwhelming firepower. So, uh, that's sort of what motivated a lot of the technological development that was going on before the Second World War. Okay. Uh, yeah, so so that was it. Uh, so that was sort of what, what set the stage uh, before was centralization, industrial, you know, industrialization. Um, there are a lot of other, tons and tons of other things to talk about with that. But, uh, you know, I, I think it, without a doubt, uh, Stalin created the Soviet Union as a major power in the world. Okay. Um, because before that, it was kind of seen as a backwater that was, you know, a, a threat, you know, because it could be an example to revolutionaries. Right. But, you know, the idea of Lenin's Soviet Union, you know, invading its neighbors to dominate them is just ridiculous. Okay. Um, yeah. It's more of a kind of cultural threat before then, not a like existential threat for military purposes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of the basics of Stalin. Um, he's and obviously he defines the second world war. Yeah. Um, and I, I think later we will have a world war two episode. We'll talk about that. Oh, for depth. sure. Um, I do want, I, I know we're getting a little bit lengthy on this and I want to move along into just kind of this. Yeah. Um, we'll just go over time. That's okay. Yeah. Um, but I do want to still have like a discussion then about like, uh, what communism meant economically in the Soviet union. I want to talk about command economy. Yeah, sure. Um, and kind of have just a brief description of like what that looked like in the early cold war and how command economy was in opposition to the U S market driven economies. Yeah. Well, um, what do you, you, you know, what do you know about it? <laughs> oh, me, I know pretty much jack yeah. shit. I mean, I have these general ideas about it of, you know, that, uh, the Soviet system was much more like, we need this built. We are going to actually use the industry we have just as part as, as a wing of the state to yeah. uh, produce planes where the U S had yeah. more of this kind of, we're going to have to court these, um, economic interests, these yeah. industrial interests and, you know, get them to agree to build these planes for us. And there's, you know, constant, there's people bidding yeah. against each other and more of an actual, like, well, let's see what the best mm-hmm. options are. And that leads to things where we have, you know, the, um, S16s versus MIGs. Right. So I, I think a good, I, I don't know the specifics of how the Soviet Union operated its centralized economy, but I think though that a good comparison is kind of like how the U.S. operated its economy during World War II. Yeah, um, is kind of similar to the way the Soviet Union operated its economy most of the time. 
Okay. Um, where corporations were an extension of the state in right. many ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the details of how, of how it operated after the war in particular. Okay. Um, most, mostly when it came to, uh, to the management, there were lots of quotas, which were very similar to what the U.S. had during the Second World War, right. uh, and, and you know, and defined our legal system in many ways. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, I think we can gloss over. Yeah, no, I'm no help there. Like, <laughs> okay, no worries. Uh, I'll be able to research yeah. that for a later episode. We can talk about that either in relation to World War II or just maybe just defining market economy and. Uh, juxtaposing it to yeah command economy i think i think uh, another way to look at it is um you know being a socialist here in the u.s uh what are some of the things that you've run into when people have brought up the soviet union I mean, they do talk about, you know, uh, being a massive authoritarian government that imprisons a ton of people in these political prison systems. Um, they talk about that there was this kind of widespread austerity, which led to usually the discussion is bread lines. That's the one common one of people having to wait out in line, to right. pay, you know, their ration of bread. Um, that's actually the two big ones. I think those are two big the, ones. And then besides yeah. this general idea of like, well, communism is just bad because look, bread lines exist. <laughs> um, which uh, and I know um, we're trying to not talk too much about the current pandemic, yeah. but seeing you know these massive lines yeah. outside of Costco because there's not enough bread for the buy because people are buying bread panicked. Um, yeah, we have literal we have literal bread lines right now. Hey, well, this was going to look like if Bernie Sanders yeah. was the presidency. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and never mind the fact that it was literally the lack of bread that led to people creating the Soviet Union. Yes. You know, so so you have these revolutions that, like, they were called bread riots. That's what led to it. Oh, yeah. Um, so bread's important. We have to have an episode about bread. I mean, <laughs> bread is important. Um, you know, uh, yeah, it, it, and also as a as a symbol of socialist organizing. But I also uh, think how it's just a very good symbol of trans identity bread yeah a few being like well you don't know no, you shouldn't you know try and transition you're the way god made you and the immediate great response is god made grain didn't make bread <laughs> my estrogen pills are my yeast <laughs> yeah that's hmm. <laughs> mm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'll take it um, right. <laughs> um so uh i mean the ussr was undisputably an authoritarian state yes it was absolutely an authoritarian state there yeah <laughs> um and and there's some interesting things to talk about with that um and there were bread lines uh but there were also bread lines in the soviet union at around the same time that there were bread lines in the u.s during the depression yeah um and there were bread shortages sometimes because of, of agricultural and economic mismanagement by the state. And uh, I, I'm not one of those people who thinks that Holodomor was a like 
planned intentional genocide. Um, I think that it, I think that it is as much a genocide as the Irish famine. Um, well, I mean, and, I, I, I'm happy to talk yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah. And as much a genocide as like the Sri Lankan famine under Churchill um, at around the same time. Yeah. Which I would also um, agree with that. So, I mean, so <laughs> like, I don't think that it was like the same like level of like Nazis industrialized intentional uh, genocide like that, but it, it was certainly um, taking food from one area and sending it to other people that the state valued more um, along with a number of other things going on on the ground. Uh, so the Soviet Union had that going on um, for sure. Uh, but I, I think that you can't really blame climate conditions on the Soviet Union like for, for, for causing like grain shortages overall anyway. So you can blame them for right. their mismanagement and for their, uh, and for their dislike of Ukrainians generally over Russians. Um, so, well, I think the thing too, is, you know, that, yeah. uh, we've discussed previously, but the idea that, you know, the gulag system, while it did have a large number of political prisoners in it, as far as a prison system, it's pretty on par with yeah. prison systems at the time. It was, you know, folks being oh, sent to live in these so, kind of yeah. fortified little quasi-villages I mean, where they ended up, like, they, they worked. They, they chopped down trees. I mean, there was a lot of what they yeah. did. Exactly like big, I mean, prisoners. They're still prisoners, so, but they were lumber camps. Yeah, they were, they were still prisoners. Um, they were lumber camps. They were brutal places to live in. Um, but uh, – and it doesn't justify it, but I think it does help to point out what other countries were doing at the time and what other countries even do now to demonstrate that like yeah. the Soviet Union was not especially authoritarian. Uh, it was just like the normal yeah. level of authoritarian. Uh, like it, it, it really galls me to hear people who supported the British Empire talk about gulags as as like oh well that wasn't okay at the same time as they were transporting people to australia um <laughs> at the same yeah yeah well and it's not like and, and, australia and, you know, was a cakewalk for the people who got sent where there. they had but, but i mean also when they sent people to australia they had like legalized the hunting of aborigine folks in australia so there's there's other yeah. issues that need to be addressed um, when we talk about the british which yeah boy i hope well we and, talk if, about and if you go point <laughs> Yeah, if you go and look at the the stories of people uh, of what life was like uh, during the 19th century for um, people transported to Australia, it was a brutal and short life uh, to be transported there. So, um, you know, the, the Soviets based their, you know, essentially just used the, the czarist system of prisons, uh, which you know, were no different from what the British uh, had in different places in the world and no different from what the U.S. government had at the same time with uh, chain gangs. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, chain gangs working uh, out in the field, you know, it was legal slavery. So while the gulags were terrible and bad and we should not have them, they were not 
But we also shouldn't have other prisons. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah, we also shouldn't have other prisons. Um, And if anyone wants to say, oh, well, you know, the U.S. government is better today. Well, the U.S. government now imprisons more people than have ever been imprisoned ever in history. (laughs) Um, And they also have lumber camps that are prisons. Uh, You know, in in Oregon, there is a state prison that is for cutting down trees. It's a work camp. So it's and, a work and, camp. And, and there aren't political One might even call there. it a labor camp. Well, and you could argue that there aren't political prisoners there, but there are a lot of folks who do get arrested because they are participating in some, uh, you know, social, social disruption or protests or, you know, uh, anti-logging yeah. stuff, anti-pipeline stuff, especially in the green movement up in Oregon, which you can yeah. very much argue are political movements, Oh, certainly. Which then have them being arrested for being part of those movements and being engaged in activities and practice with yeah. those movements. And so at that point, you um, have to ask, are these political prisoners being sent to work in lumber camps in this, you know, not entirely hospitable yeah, environment? And uh, I, think the, I think the other aspect that we have to look at when trying to compare these things is what's the definition of a political prisoner? So in the Soviet yes. Union... That could be anything, honestly. Like we, you know, we we can absolutely accept that uh, it was very, very arbitrary. Um, okay. But uh, if, as uh, I think it was Ehrlichman said, uh, if the goal of Nixon's anti-drug policies was to go after hippies and black people, which yeah. it was, yeah, then anybody arrested under those drug laws is a political prisoner. Yeah. No, I don't have any argument against that. So Um, the laws were put in place for extremely political reasons. That is very hard to argue against. Yeah. So if you accept that premise, which you should, um, (laughs) most of the like massive proportion of prisoners in the U S are political prisoners. Yeah. Um, so whatever arguments you can come up for or against having drugs be legal or not, the reason they're illegal is for political reasons, uh, to, to undermine political power of the left and of black people. So, yeah. uh, you know, it doesn't justify the gulags, of course. Um, you know, we, I know we both agree on that. Yeah. Uh, but I think that understanding, what the standards of behavior of states actually are uh, helps us understand what the Soviet Union was uh, a little bit better, which is that it was a centralized capitalist state that treated its workers a little better. I mean, workers were were pretty much better off uh, there than in most places in the world, I think. Okay. Well, I think that's at least a good part one, because I do want to have a, a part two, the fall of the Soviet Union coming up at some oh, point. Oh, boy. Yeah. I think it'd be fun. Um, yeah. No. Capitalism one... two, electric boogaloo or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there's a reason a majority of Russians would like to have the Soviet Union back. It's not just nostalgia, my friends. <laughs> um all right, so I think it's, it's a good spot to close off for this week, though. So yeah, I think so. Um, I, I monologued a lot today. You're, you're yeah. going to get to hear a lot more of Trevor next time, I think. Hopefully. Um, yeah, I hope so. 
I hope so. Um, but uh, I think uh, I think we're both glad that y'all are joining us on this long road. Yep. Not sure where we're going, but uh... we'll get there together. <laughs> <laughs>